back in Luke's gospel. I, I mean, I love Luke's gospel. I can't get away from it, it seems. But um, to give you the context before Artie comes to read the passage for us, Jesus has been going around uh, Galilee, going around Israel, preaching and teaching, doing miracles. And uh, if you've never read the Gospels, if you're visiting us today and you just come to church because you know Nathan and you don't know anything else about Jesus, well, you're going to learn a bit about him today. But just so you know, he is the key character in all of the Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he's been walking around teaching, preaching in the first century. And he's got so many people following him that there are thousands, it says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, thousands who are trampling over one another to get to see him and listen to him. And Jesus uh, has been telling these guys some pretty unusual things. He's been saying, you don't need material possessions. Don't get attached to them. He's been saying, well, you think I've come to bring peace? I haven't. I've come to bring division. And uh, he said, I bring not peace, but a sword to, to split things apart. And I'm sure lots of people following at that time were thinking, what is this guy really about? This is strange, the things that he's saying. And as we come up to chapter 14, where we are today, Jesus is told a couple of parables. He said, uh, he's talked about two great banquets where people who are proud and put themselves first are humbled, and where the humbled who, put, who are naturally last in the order of things get brought to the front. And it's about those who exalt themselves being humbled and those who are humble being exalted that he is most interested in saying. And so when we get to this part of the passage in chapter 14, Arti, would you mind coming up to read it for us? Um, Jesus is surrounded by lots and lots of people, and he's got some difficult things uh, for them to hear. Over to Arti. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. When you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Amen. Thank you. Can we ask you a round of applause if you'd like to? Right, thank you. <laughs> Always the great to have uh, people involved. Thank you, Artie. Yep. So that passage in Luke's gospel, full of challenge from Jesus, describing the cost of discipleship, the cost of making him the one you follow, and how it is so important to evaluate the, that before. And in contrast to today's celebrity culture, where the aim is to get as many followers as you can, Jesus isn't afraid to trim his down somewhat. He goes to great lengths to help people understand that there is a huge cost to following him, and he's not interested, it seems, in the quantity. He's really interested in the quality. He's preparing them for, to, to be the early church, as we know if we read into Acts, and he's going to great lengths to make sure they understand what this is all about. In verses 25 and 27, just to reiterate them, they say, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, 
Yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So I've only got three points today. And the first one is this. Disciples of Jesus are those who love him the most. Now, the first time I heard those two verses in 25 and 27, 26 and 27 there, I had to do a bit of a double take because I had to make sure that Jesus wasn't really telling me to hate my nearest and dearest. I don't know if that happened to you the first time you read it. I got hold of a commentary, always a healthy thing to do, and read alongside it. And I, I learned, actually, no, not, he's not actually saying that. He's not saying hate your relatives, but he is saying that his disciples must love him more than anyone else. And in those original languages, Greek and Hebrew, it's like a figure of speech that is used. And uh, one example is in Malachi, where God demonstrates a greater love for one over another by saying, so-and-so I love, so-and-so I hate. But he's actually not using hate, perhaps, in the typical way we would think. It's a, it's a use of a figure of speech called hyperbole. Say hyperbole. And I know Kevin got you to do that a lot at Easter. I'm not going to make you do it anymore. But it was a good technique, and I enjoyed it. Thank you, Kevin. But hyperbole, it's, it's exaggerating to make a point. And these crop up in our language as well. Um, you might have heard someone say, oh, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Have you ever seen anyone eat a horse? Or you could say, you hear someone say, She's so, she can hear a pin drop a mile away, like my gran. Or it's raining cats and dogs. Never seen it rain cats and dogs. But we're exaggerating to make a point to say something. And that's what Jesus' technique is here. His, his would-be followers need to get that they need to love him so much that the love they have for their relatives and their nearest and dearest is like hate in comparison. And Jesus knows it's going to shock his audience. He knows that the decision to put him above all other relationships will cause the audience to question his identity. Imagine yourself there in the crowd on that day when you hear him saying it. You can imagine people looking around others' shoulders going, did that bloke just say I need to hate my mum? Like, what? What's he talking about? But he's actually saying, I want you to love me more than you love your mum. Jesus knows people won't understand the instruction here unless they believe he is God. Unless they believe he is the son of God, they're going to find it really difficult to put some other human above all others. Well, the fact of the matter is he's not just some other human. And so later in the Gospels, Jesus is asked by someone, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus refers back to the Old Testament and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. By which Jesus is saying to those that would be disciples, he's saying, put me, God, first in your life. Love me more than anything else and anyone else. And that's what we are called to do. Humans are called to do this, but also humans naturally don't do this. You will have noticed the majority of people in our world at the moment don't put Jesus first. They don't worship him. They don't glorify him. And when that happens, the reality is they put something else there instead. It could be money. It could be sport. It could be food. It could be possessions. It could be entertainment. It could be a family member or a friendship. Something gets put above Jesus in their lives. And for people who don't know the gospel, who've never been witnessed to, who've never read the Bible, don't know him, that's kind of understandable. But in our context, as disciples of Jesus, it's not acceptable. You can't be a disciple of Jesus unless he is first in your life. 
And there are many more we could add to that list of things that displace Jesus and displace God in people's lives. And um, if you need to uh, help someone else do this, or even if you just want to do it for yourself at some point, if you need to analyze your life in any way to find out what my love priorities are, what do I love the most, second most, third most, follow your time and follow your money. I remember a preacher talking about this many years ago. He said, if you follow your time and your money, if you work out where your resources are put, then you'll find out what your top priority is and what you love most. And uh, this isn't a modern thing. This is something that, in fact, St. Augustine worked out as well. He described the problem in human hearts, sin, as disordered loves. He famously said, the essence of sin is disordered love. Sin is ultimately a lack of love either for God or our neighbor, as per the first commandment. And so if anything takes God's place, then love has become disordered in our lives. And James, the brother of Jesus, talks about it as well. He reiterates this in his letter to dispersed Christians. He speaks to them and he says, look, when your loves are disordered, you run after and chase after the wrong things, things that don't satisfy. And I had this experience firsthand when I was born again as a Christian, uh, and you'll probably pick up the problem straight away. My, my first ever real prayer to God in earnest was, God, if you are God, you can get me a girlfriend. And uh, he duly did, which, was, which is kind. But then he actually used it, I think, perhaps for one single purpose. And that was to teach me that God has to come first. Because during our relationship, God, who I'd been so excited about, I, went, I got saved at Soul Survivor, a Christian event. I went there and I came away so alive. And all for God, surrendered to him, and then slowly over time, uh, this person replaced God in my life. I stopped going to church so much, stopped reading the Bible, stopped talking about God so much. And this girl gradually became my first love, and uh, by God's grace and mercy, we, we broke up. And for the next two years, I was angry at God about that, because he'd taken away my first love. And then again, by God's grace and mercy, I repented. I remember I was in San Diego I sat down in the bath on my own because my best friend had just had a fight with me. Uh, not a literal fight, but like a verbal fight. And um, I sat down in the bath and I went, God, I'm all alone. I'm all alone. What have I, I, I want to put you first again. And I remember thinking that, and again, by his grace, that I, I sensed the Holy Spirit come to me in that moment of repentance and say, grace to you. It's okay. You can come back to me. And it was like a prodigal moment for me where I decided to put God first again. And again, it's quite uh, comforting when you read in the scriptures about Jesus' very close disciples in the first century because even Peter, as you'll know, denied him. Uh, said, Jesus, I'm going to go with you to the cross. I'm going to die with you. And then he ran away. And actually, it turned out he was his first love, not Jesus. And yet again, later in the gospel, Jesus redeems him, shows grace to him. And it's a wonderful, uh, comforting story. And so it's really important if this happens in our lives. If we, even if you don't start to notice, if you don't notice, someone else probably will. I think that's the likelihood. And we need each other for this. We need people to, say, to, to point it out when actually we're starting to put more time and more effort towards things or people that are not God. And although we might react badly to start with, we've got to repent. We've got to stop. We've got to do the analysis. We've got to go, wait, wait, could you check my heart? God, could you check me and tell me, show me where I'm not putting you first or if I'm not putting you first and not loving you most, if we want to be Jesus' disciples? It's humbling, but it's also an opportunity to celebrate God's grace 
to us when this happens. That's the first one. Disciples of Jesus are to love him the most. The second one is this. Disciples of Jesus are to daily die to self. Jesus said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, they would have known exactly what that meant, Jesus' disciples, in that century. Anyone carrying a cross in those days wasn't just doing it for fun. They were doing it because they had been sentenced, because they were walking to their death, and hundreds would have been crucified in that century, and they would have known this. And so Jesus is declaring that his disciples are to make this daily decision to die to self, which would enable them to be completely dedicated to Christ, completely able to act in faith and willing obedience to him. And ultimately, if someone refuses to do this, then they can't be Jesus' disciples, he says. They must surrender all to him daily. And this presents a challenge to anyone who's, who's considering following Jesus. When they, again, you imagine that crowd around Jesus. They're thinking about it. They're considering it because it means that Jesus can't become just an addition to your life. He can't be just an add-on. He has to be the whole thing. You have to completely die. Again, symbolic today as Nathan goes down into the water, down into the grave. He goes completely under the water and is raised anew. We have to completely die to oneself and raised up again by Jesus and follow him, his agenda. We die to self. And so Jesus' closest disciples, well, when he's with them, they ask him, Jesus, how should we pray? And Jesus is so uh, amazing. He, he works this into the prayer that he's taught and that you might have been taught when you were at school, if uh, you're of my generation or before then. Um, he taught them to pray, hallowed, Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or essentially, your kingdom come, your will be done. He worked into the prayer that they were meant to recite and pray so that they would do this often. And, the way, and when we submit to Jesus, when we submit our will to his, it means we're, we're, we're signing up to, essentially, a life where we don't always get what we want. We do what God wants. We get what God has for us. We submit our agenda to him. We accept his and, and reject ours. And he gives us what we need. Again, it's in that prayer. God, give us our daily bread. He gives us everything we need. And so by taking up our cross every day, dying to self every day, we get to live a life where Jesus is at the center, where he gets the glory. And it's not uh, an easy life necessarily. It's not. It's following Christ will involve suffering and pain. He talks about this in the gospel. It will involve humiliation, sadness, isolation at times. And um, the opposite of living for Jesus and putting him first is essentially living for yourself. And if you live for yourself, you become a bit like a stream, a stream that only goes one way and chooses the path of least resistance, serves self first and not God. And that's what happens if we don't submit to Jesus. And so following Jesus will often mean choosing a harder path, but ultimately it's a better one overall. I remember Tim Keller, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, wonderful preacher in America, brilliant guy. He says, you don't get a, an easy life to, if you decide to be a disciple of Jesus, but you do get a better life overall. He, he gives this kind of encouragement, this promise with it. It's where he's saying, look, it's harder, but ultimately it's going to be better with him. And so a life lived in Christ is not about us. He's saying, Jesus says, don't come and live for yourself anymore. Come and live me. And when Jesus calls them, calls people to be his disciples, he's not just looking for behavior change. He's not looking for religion. He's looking for people who will completely let go of their old life and take up a new one in him. And so 
That's the two things. Disciples of Jesus are to love him most and to die daily to self. And the last point is this, that there is a cost to becoming a disciple of Jesus, but it's worth it. In the last part of this passage, you would have probably seen those two vivid, vivid pictures um, where, they count, where Jesus encourages people to grasp that they must count the costs before making a decision. But if you have been around a bit and you know the Gospels, you'll, you might have uh, spotted a kind of potential conflict there, a conflict with the truth that actually the Gospel as we know it is given for free. People can receive salvation for free and eternal life, the gift of eternal life as it is, is given for free. But also now we're talking about there being a cost. So how can it be free and costly at the same time? That's the kind of issue that I came across when I was reading this. And in reading around and trying to find a succinct answer, uh, I came to C.H. Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, a wonderful preacher who I, I love to read. And he's really helpful in describing how this kind of, uh, these two things kind of marry up and tie together. And so I'm just going to read him. A, it's a little bit of a lengthier quote, but it's, a, it's just so rich and so good. He said, far be it from us to create any confusion of thought here. The gifts of God's grace cost us nothing. Neither could his salvation be purchased with money, nor with merit, nor by vows and penances. If a man should give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. The gospel motto is, without money and without price. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Yet, for all that, if a man or person will be a Christian, it will cost him something. Consider a moment. Here is a blind man sitting by the wayside begging. He asks to have his eyes opened. Will it cost him anything? No, the Savior would not accept all the gold in the world for the cure. He will freely open his eyes. But when they are opened, it will cost that blind man something. Obtaining his sight will be called upon to discharge the duties of one who has eyes. He will not be allowed after that to sit there and beg, or if he tries to do so, will lose his sympathy, which is bestowed upon blindness. Now that his eyes are opened, he must use them and earn his own bread. It will cost him something, for he will now be conscious of the darkness of night, which he knew nothing of before. And there are sad sights, which now he must look upon, which never grieved him before. For often what the eye does not see, the heart does not rue. A man cannot gain a faculty except at some expense, either increaseth knowledge or the means of gaining it increaseth both sorrow and duty. True religion is the gift of God, and there is nothing we can do to purchase it. At the same time, if we receive it, certain consequences will flow from it, and we ought to consider whether we shall be able to put up with them. So he's highlighting the fact that there is a cost involved. Once someone's eyes are open like that, once they know the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for them, once they declare that he's their Lord and Savior, as Nathan is going to do when he's standing in that water, there's a consequence. And the consequence is loving him first and submitting to his rule, making him Lord of every area of our lives. That's what it means to become a disciple. And it leads to moments in life where they are, there are ouch moments. Do you remember Tim talked about this the other day? Ouch moments a few weeks back. If you haven't listened to it, then, uh, then do so. Where we make decisions which are going to cost us daily, weekly, monthly, over time. But they're the kind of challenges and kind of decisions that are not wasted. They're not there just to be painful. They're there because they help refine us 
like gold in a furnace and sanctify us on the journey now as we walk with Jesus as a result of putting our faith in him. And uh, in that latter part, there's those, those two pictures, one of a tower. Uh, the word there is also used for grand mansion or villa or country mansion. And uh, one of my favorite programs to watch is Grand Designs. Uh, hands up if anyone likes Grand Designs. Yeah, a lot of you are probably into interior design masters. I haven't watched the final. Anyway, um, but the, the point being, Grand Designs, people come to build a building, and they kind of try and build something uh, grand and massive. And often it, it looks a lot like them at the end, if you've ever noticed that. It kind of, it, it's like a monument to self, isn't it? And for a while, I thought I'd quite like to do that, but then I thought I'd probably never enough money. Anyway, if God gives me the opportunity, I might do. But anyway, some people come to build their grand design, and they've got a budget, but then Kevin McLeod sits down with them. He's the host of the show. And he smugly says at the end, so how much does it cost? And uh, they look at him, and, uh, and they're like, oh, um, oh, oh, too much. And then they go, well, no, no, come on, exactly how much did it cost? And he goes, I don't know. And they're embarrassed, they're humiliated, because not only has it gone over budget, it's probably not even finished. A lot of them these days are not even finished. And it's disappointing for them and humiliating, but it's disappointing and annoying for the viewer, because you want them to finish it. You want them to finish it. I'm not watching this show for 55 minutes just so you can not finish the grand design. Like, anyway... Clearly, my loves are somewhat disordered in a sense, aren't they? You can see from the emotion. But the, the reality being, unfinished towers don't bring glory to anyone. <laughs> they bring ridicule, particularly from Kevin MacLeod, which is hilarious. But completed towers, a mansion, a vista, a wonderful building, and you will have seen some, I'm sure, in your times, uh, give glory to both the builder and the architect. And if you become a disciple of Jesus, your foundations get laid on, Je- uh, laid on Jesus. And Nathan, your foundations are laid in Jesus. Just want to remind you of that. Which means it's firm. Which means it's not going anywhere. And the next step, or if you like, the next brick in the wall is a brick of love. And then there's a brick of faith. And then there's a brick of endurance. And then there's a brick of godliness. And there's a brick of patience, kindness, self-control. And these bricks get built into you like a tower And it builds up in you a godly character that will stand at the day of judgment. And that's what we're building. That's what Jesus is saying. If you can't take these hits that shape and build this building with me, then it's worth not starting. You mustn't start if you don't think you can take it. And we start building with Jesus. And then we continue building him. And then we complete building with him by the Holy Spirit at the end of his time. And it is the most wonderful life. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus... It's hard to be a follower of Jesus, but it's good. It's more than good, and it's more than worth it. The cost is more than worth it in the end. The other picture Jesus uses is of war, and uh, we're all far too familiar with the costs of war, both uh, material and financial, and the cost of human life, and loss suffered at the moment. It's all over the news, isn't it, still? But the externals in war here could be compared to the many costly battles that Christians will face, that those who follow Jesus will face. The battle here really in life, if you're following Jesus, is between the person, the gracious person in him, and the rampant world outside, the world, uh, the flesh, the devil. They're all throwing things at you. The gigantic foe, I mean, it's described in the text as 20,000 versus 10,000. They're not good odds. They're not good if you're entering into that battle, but can you still win through, even when the odds are going to be against you, 
as a follower of Jesus? Well, my prayer and hope is that if you are following him and you are his disciple, the answer is, yes, I believe I can. My faith is a, is a weapon. It's, a, it's pointy. It's a, short, a sword that I use to battle against the enemy. So when we face trials and temptations by him, we, we, we aren't left alone. And again, this is again, a huge comfort, and we would have to spend a lot more time unpacking it. But again, by God's grace, he doesn't leave us to, to face the cost, to face these challenges alone. He, Jesus has promised and sent his Holy Spirit, which is why we emphasize this so much among ourselves in this family, because we want to lay hands on each other and see the Holy Spirit come and empower people to keep winning through, to keep battling, to continue on, because it is worth it. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is costly, but it is worth it. And lastly, just to um, quote Spurgeon one more time, he says, cost what it may, it is worth what it costs. So good. We're going to conclude in a moment, but um, you might have been provoked perhaps by some of the things I said to ask, why on earth would anyone become a follower of Jesus? How on earth does that happen? Well, it happens because Jesus is God. He's the one thing that will satisfy. He's the one thing, he's the one person that is worthy of our praise, as we sung earlier. He's the one, the worthy one, who gave up his own life for us. And through faith in him, you can receive eternal life. You can be known. You can be fully loved and fully satisfied. And ultimately, you can be saved from sin and death and hell. That's the reality. That's why people choose to follow him, because they believe he's God, and they believe he died and rose from the dead. And how are people transformed into his disciples? Well, they hear and understand and believe the gospel, the good news. They have a radical experience of God's mercy through reading the Easter story. If you didn't read the Easter story over Easter, then I, I encourage you, read it today. They have a radical experience of grace through understanding that God's judgment that should be on every human being got placed on Jesus, and the fire was taken up by him on the cross. And lastly, they get a radical experience of God's love for them when they believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and when they understand that he did all this, that by his grace we know all these things through the Bible because he loves us so significantly. And it's that that leads to people being transformed. And we're about to go into a series called Transformed Life. And Kevin's already endorsed it, but I'm just going to do that again. Because after um, some time, it's, it's quite easy to forget some of the most important preliminary questions uh, of being a disciple of Jesus. Like, who am I? Like, why am I here? What am I doing? And in the midst of all our busyness and things going on in life, you can get lost in that. And actually, this series is going to be so significant for us I think as we step into radical, uh, spirit-empowered discipleship again for another term, doing that devotional, listening to it, reading it, and ask God to transform us again. Because we need that. We need to keep going back to him and asking. We're going to finish there.